We're recording it uh, as, a, as a ministry, and I think Stacy said something. We said something to me one time. There's a people that people can check up and see what's going on and verify that we're not falling into error out here in San Francisco like everybody else seems to. So um, let's begin. Let's look at the word right now. And we're in the middle of Mark. Ooh, I like Mark. I don't know if you picked up on that. I really enjoy this book in a literary way. I enjoy its literary vividness, its, its character. You know, there's a, it's very, very common to deconstruct the Gospels as fanciful accounts generated centuries afterwards by people in love with the idea of Christ and simply taking some of his words and ideas and adumbrating them and somehow surrounding them or, or somehow encompassing them with uh, fanciful stories and adding to them and subtracting. Let me tell you something. It's a load of garbage. It has no intellectual, no intellectual integrity whatsoever as a perspective. It was debunked. It was debunked a long time ago, even though it finds its way re- regularly and routinely into the History Channel <laughs> or Discovery Channel or whatever. And all that stuff is, trust me, I'm not making this up as an advertisement for my own beliefs. That is, simply isn't true. These texts were discovered by fragment and, 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 uh, and uh, uh, different copy to have tremendous antiquity. And antiquity, it's a little bit scary. Like we have found copies of some of the Gospels dating back to AD 75. Uh, I mean, there's a, there is a tradition and there is a number. There were 5,000 copies of the New Testament and different parts and pieces uh, in Greek. That's how many copies we have of this. And so some of that detective hunt has led to a debunking of the ridicule of the scriptures as being, as being creations of the church at a later date. It simply isn't that. It simply isn't that. Mark has all of the vividness, all of the creativity, all of the immediacy. And we remember, if you notice, immediate is one of his favorite words of a, of a firsthand account. And by good tradition, the, mark, the, the title Mark never occurs without the gospel. And the only Mark we know about in the New Testament was John Mark, who was a companion of Peter. So just imagine, this is some of Peter's retelling. By the way, in line with that, and because of that connection, on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights now, we're going to start studying the book of Peter. And I think it's a wonderful connection, because once you start connecting the way Peter preaches with the way the text describes him, with the way he experiences Jesus, it's obvious that there's a lot going on in him. A lot of wonderful connections to be made. You're invited to those and connect with us at those events. So... I'm excited about Mark. Now, we are just starting. Mark 4 is the beginning of a, a bunch of teaching, a bunch of the words of Jesus, and a lot of them are parables. They are stories told with an intent. They actually have a rather simplistic and rustic structure. They tend to be, uh, they tend to be uh, uh, very pastoral. And I don't mean pastoral as from a pastor. I mean pastoral as from a shepherd, like from somebody who lives out... Uh, uh, in, 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 uh, in a rural area and is familiar with it. And so Christ adopts, uh, as, as any good teacher would, a pedagogical style that people really get. They totally get it. Everybody gets it. Everybody immediately goes, everybody's sitting there and they're delighted by it. 
And so he's very, very earthy, very, very easy to understand, very easy to kind of, wow, this guy's, people love it. Now, did anybody here grow up on a farm? Excellent. Wow. All right. So we have somebody who can connect with the story. You should probably be preaching, and I shouldn't. Uh, let's, let's, let's read here. Now, this first story is kind of a paradigmatic. In other words, what it does is it sets up that there are hidden meanings in the parables, and they're fairly simple. And as we're going to, so this is one of the only parables that Christ explains. Sometimes he'll explain sometimes, but a lot of times he doesn't. And so it's going to be up to us as we get past this. Well, we're going to move on to the next parable next week. And you'll notice he's going, to, he's going to explain it to his disciples, not to the public. We talked about what that meant last week and some of its implications. I encourage you to listen to that if you're confused as to why Christ doesn't want people to understand things. Mark chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him. So that he could he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. You know how water uh, carries sound? It's kind of clever. Water really carries sound. So uh, the prisoners in Alcatraz could hear people partying on New Year's Eve every year. That's how well sound travels across water. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Let's stop right there. Jesus seems to think they should get this. Does anybody, if you haven't read, I don't know how anybody would have gotten it, which really puzzles me, really frustrates me. And I want to invite you into that frustration for a moment. Just because something else has to happen today for this whole message to make any sense. Some other ingredient has to enter in. But he, he just imagine if Jesus right now was sitting here and you didn't get what I was talking about. You know what, he would, he would be frustrated. I don't get to be frustrated. Well, I guess I could be, but it wouldn't be very winsome. Christ obviously doesn't care about being winsome right now with the, these guys. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path. Where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown in rocky ground. Now notice he says these. You hear though these, the direct reference? It's almost like he's pointing at something. You almost get, that's how immediate it is. It almost feels like he's, he must have told us more than once. 
it almost gets the impression that he's pointing at seeds that people could have seen. It's really strange. But people sow everywhere in those lands to see what will take root. And these, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And when, did I read that? No, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. These are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Father, bless the teaching, the preaching, the hearing of the word with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but... uh, So Jesus was a hick. Jesus was a hayseed. Do you get that? Our Savior's a hick. He grew up out in the... Have you heard the expression, the sticks? So when I was a kid, we, we grew up in the sticks. And in people in the country know what the sticks means. There's country, and then there's the sticks. It means you live, like, in the, in the, in the more rural parts of the rural areas. And there's something, I don't even know, sometimes I wonder, there's a couple things I think about this. This could be charming to you. Like, we could, some of us, if you already know Christ, this could be kind of charming and have a sense of kind of, Oh, wow, but I, I imagine that some of us could just kind of got to be a little bit arrested by it, a little put off by me saying our Savior is a hick, that the king of the world and the king of the universe, who he winds up being called as the son of God, is, is a hayseed. Like that, that might be a little bit uh, difficult to swallow. What do you do with that? What? Listen to him. His metaphors, his images, his... his, 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 his he, he, he digs in. He, he's, a man of the, he's a man of the earth. And his, and, his, and his language is earthy and immediate. And Jesus, is a, Jesus is a country boy. Maybe he's the only one who could really sing that song, Thank God I'm a Country Boy by John Denver. <laughs> I should know better than to come off the cuff with things like that. All right, so... I, uh, I, I, but one of the problems I have with this, and one of the things that concerns me as I think about it, and as I digest it, as I want to kind of bring it to us today, as I think about what it means for us, is that the, it creates a distance. It just creates a gulf. And it can create uh, what feels like, look, you just, we just, none, none of us, except, well, one of us, uh, has experienced anything agrarian in any kind of meaningful sense. We may have, we may have, had a hobby of gardening. That might be the closest we've gotten is the hobby. Urban gardening is a big fad right now, right? And so maybe some of us, but it's really, it really doesn't speak with any urgency. So that kind of concerns me. I wonder, I wonder how we can be possessed by this text or have it, have it any root with us. And what's the point of the parable too? Like, what's the point? Like, what, what, what's it supposed to create in you, Ryan? 
How, is he, how are you supposed to respond to it? What's the response to the parable? Become good soil? And this really, this, in fact, honestly, I don't like preaching on this parable. Because I feel like it's just a little bit, it seems a little too common sense to me. Like, it's like, well, what do I say about it? Let me say the things Jesus said. But then it, something crept in me. Something kind of worked on me about it. And I began to realize this has more than merely explanatory power, although it does have that. You know, this is a deep explanatory power for the church. A lot of us experience or wonder why people fall away or why people who think they really look like Christians suddenly disappear or why people who really have chased Christ uh, seem to lose fervor as they get later in life. And, I, and, and this, is a, this, is a, this has explanatory power. It is giving you a way of understanding the things you have seen if you've seen the church law. It's giving you a way to kind of say, okay, I can hang Pete here, or I can hang Jimmy over here, or I can see this is what happened to my friend uh, uh, Sally, or I can, you know, we could do that. And it can, it can give us a sort of a, of an, of an arch, some more sort of organizational chart, as it were, right? An organizational hanging board. And you should do that. You should use that for this reason. You should take it and, and look through your life. And if you have an inventory, nothing I find more discouraging for a number of Christians and some young believers, nothing more discouraging than seeing how people who looked so fervent just disappear. How many times has that happened now in your life, Ted? As you get older, it's astounding. And you, even pastors, even, and, and, and you hear, and, and it, just, it just really, it can rack you with a lot of doubt, can't it? It can rack you with a lot of uh, insecurity about our faith. And, and, and you can, but here Christ is saying, no, no, don't you get it? You know, there, we are not immune from the same categories, the same kinds of, of, of things and ordinary things. This is the ordinary life of the church. This is the ordinary life of faith. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by the people who were immediately alive and disappeared, or the people who go, grew cold. Or the people, when they sit there, and this is something that happens a lot with preaching, the people who, as you're talking to them, have you ever had this look, as you're talking to somebody, you can just see, it's almost like something is taking the words you're saying and taking them out. I'm not talking about your spouse, that's not fair. No, don't talk about that. I'm talking about somebody outside your, outside your marriage, and you're, like, you're talking to them, and the minute you talk to them, it's like the idea just seems to disappear. Have you ever talked to anybody like that? It's like everything you're saying is like literally disappearing like, a, like, you know when you fry in a pan, you're drying it, and the water, little water beads up, and it rolls around on top of a Teflon pan, and it's like this dis- and it, it evaporates under, on, on the stovetop as it's getting heated up? It's like that. Ideas are just disappearing. And you're like, what am I? I'll be preaching, I, I'll be speaking or teaching or sharing my faith, and I can see it. So it's like, boot, it's like, boot. It's like, like the harsh. Don't be discouraged, Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying. Jesus is lovingly saying, this is exactly what I am experiencing. (laughs) Get this? He's describing what he's experiencing right there. He's looking at the yawns and the, and the, and the, and the, and the obliviousness and the, and the passion that's going to turn to nothing. He he knows he's, he's experiencing it all. He's experiencing it all. This is autobiographical for him. It is a description of his own ministry. I'll still come back to this. 
I've, so I've, I've advertised, I've kind of urged you uh, to return to, this, return to this parable again and again in your life when you're confused about the things happening in religious community because it's going to give you comfort again. Okay, good, good. That's helpful, Chris. I, I get that. What are we supposed to do, though? Because if you know God, if you know God at all, there should be an itch, a concern, a worm, a, like a little, a little niggle in the back of your, of your, of your head, a, a little pinch, a little push that's saying, hey, are you one of those other soils? It should be like a little, a little alarm in the back of your head, like a little, ding, 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 ding. wait a second, I don't want to be, I don't want to be what? I don't want to be the shallow soil. I don't want to be the, 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 the thorn-infested soil. I don't want to be that pathway with, I don't want to be that. And if that is where you are at, you're in a good place. I think you're ready to hear where this parable pushes you, where, what it invites you into in Christ. Because I think it's inviting us into something. I think it's inviting us into, and by warning us of the three dangers, and that warning itself is going to drive us to, 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 uh, to, to trying to find a new depth, a new loam, a new fingers in the dirt, a new intensity, a new desire for Jesus. So the first one, though, is the, these are the three threats to the word, to, to the gospel, to the, to the advent of the kingdom, to the growth of Christ, to spiritual new life. These are the three threats. Satan, superficiality, and success. And oddly enough, and, and I think this is part of the great wisdom, not only of the scripture, but of Christ, it's the, it's the kind of threats that are in this room right now. They are alive now. Isn't it wonderful that we could say, I could say, and I, and I could say it, I could mean it, and, and it's an accurate historical fact that Christ is, is a country boy. But his words drip, his words penetrate, his words live right where we are right now. Right in San Francisco, in this room this morning. Three threats. Satan, superficiality, and success. Well, so let's work through those and, and, we'll, and we'll see what we, we can learn from them. And, and how to identify them. Because I think that's what this parable, that's kind of what as we kind of move a little deeper into it, how, how, can we act on, how can we act on these threats? And the first one is Satan. It's a chilling picture, by the way. Demonology and The Exorcist. Apparently this new movie, The Witch, is supposed to be absolutely terrifying. These, I, I tend to stay away from very supernatural thrillers that have any tinge of reality because they kind of, because I believe in that world. I believe in a supernatural world. So they really get me. I mean, I, this is the way I'll watch a movie like that. I'll, like, a little crack in my hand. I'll be like, I'll just watching like that. And I'll, <laughs> when I'm doing it with Alex, they look at me and say, Dad, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> like, I'm like, you know, I'm a grown man. I my eyes. I'm so scared. And uh, we are given precious little. That's all fanciful, guys. 90, 99% of it's fanciful. But what we are, when we are given things like this, we ought to pay attention. We are given an insight, something that actually does happen, we ought to be alert. And that's this, that is this. The, the, the ability of Satan to abscond, to rob, to take, to, to, to remove knowledge of God 
right from the heart or mind of somebody you're speaking to. The supernatural tableau that is behind that is that that is behind and under the under the visual spectrum, it's there. Even as you begin to talk about your faith and your love of Christ, it's there. It's here right now, and and we don't see it. And Christ is telling us there is a there is a presence almost hovering like the bird, like a like a like a bird hovers, waiting to see if a truth finally lands, and then to do what? To come in to take. Oh, oh, what a. What are we to do? What are we to do? When a Christian is told to put on the armor of God and describe, and the, th- the fight against demonic powers described, exorcism is never described. Not first. You know what's described first? Pray. Pray. And pray. You know, um, you need to pray for your pastor. And pray for each other. You need to pray for your husband all the time. And you for your wife. We need to pray for everybody who we would share the good news with. Because our Savior tells us that that, that is the remedy. That is the antidote. That is the... Put it this way. Let's get, let's get agrarian. Let's get agricultural. That's the scarecrow. What do you do when you got a problem with birds scooping up seed? What do you put up? You put up a scarecrow. That's what we're doing when we pray. Warding off. And he can't, and you know what? Satan cannot prevail against the prayers of the saints. He has never been able to. It is impossible. The word of one daughter, one son against him causes him to tremble and run. He has to flee. He has to, he can't. To when we as kids, and this is so the opposite of praise, to live in live in the victory, guys. I'm, this is reality. You and I, if this word be true, if this world be true, if this, if this image of Christ be true, if he is the son of God, then you and I have been brought into a, a certain kind of divine royalty. And our words, our cries, Father, I, Father, pray for this or that. He can't even hear it without trembling and running from the presence of Christ. And it's not because you're awesome, Sarah. You're so powerful spiritually. It's because Christ is in you. And Satan and the demons can have no more power against you and no more than they could against him. And you notice how they respond to him, don't you? They shriek and they run and they beg. Uh, there's an invitation in the parable to live in victory by living in the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus against the satanic kingdom that is ruling. But it's a false rule. It's a misrule. It's a usurping. Because Christ is the king of San Francisco, not Satan. Satan just pretends to be the king of this place. So he can terrorize Christians and swoop down and remove the gospel over and over again. Father, we pray together that that would stop happening. So put up the scarecrow. Live in the victory and pray. What's the second thing that the parable invites us into? Superficiality. Recognizing the dangers of superficiality. You know, it's so funny. Does anybody want to admit they're superficial? Does anybody want to admit they're shallow? Come on, shallow, you can do it. Just put your hand up. Right. 
Oh, Deepak City superficial. Okay. All right. We got. Oh, you're, you're saying shall, or you're affirming shall. All right. Um, superficiality. The root that doesn't have it, it doesn't have any root. The words are vivid. It's, uh, it's rocky ground. There's joy, but they have no root. Tribulation or persecution arises. Any difficulty arises. They endure for a while. Oh, good grief. If this isn't one of the most significant threats to American evangelicalism, I don't know what is. I'm going to say something political, and I don't have any political agenda in it because I don't care what the issues are, and I don't care about the candidate. But it chills me to the bone when I hear a candidate like Trump has the evangelical vote in the South. I'm sorry. It just, it just makes me sad. Now, maybe it's all about his politics. Maybe it's just because of his hard line on who knows what he stands for, making America great again. I'm not against Trump. I don't care. But he's not a Christian candidate. And you know what it telegraphs to me? You know what it communicates to me? At root, and I saw this all the time in the South, maybe it's not as much of a danger here, but I'll tell you, I've been to some churches in San Francisco, and superficiality thrives everywhere. <laughs> it just does. It's, one of the, it's, like the, it's just like this. It comes up immediately. You know, It's that quick flash. It's the flash mob of Christianity, right? It totally comes together, and it's exciting and new, and then bam, it's gone. There's actually been a, there's an old saint who's lived in this, in this city since the 60s. He moved here in the 60s. Strong Christian. And his lament was how many churches he's seen flash here in San Francisco. Bam, gone. Thousands, gone. Just, just like that, over and over again. We can't afford a superficial gospel because the crime and the, the, the crime of this generation, it's sin, is not, it's not a superficial wound. <laughs> it's not a superficial problem, right? It's not, a superficial, it's not a superficial wickedness and a superficial corruption that has entered in our lives. And then superficiality, oh my goodness. I, I think about how, I think about this. And, and so what's... How do you know if you're superficial? Golly. Um, there's so many jokes I want to make right now. None of them, none of them, none of them, all, of them, all of them are mean. Let's do this. Let's assume all of us have a superficiality about us, right? Um, and it can be surprising. My mother was an antique dealer. And one of the, and I say antique dealer, she had things that were centuries old, chests and beautiful. I remember as a kid, I loved it. It was, it was the things were so beautiful. They just they just kind of they were intoxicatingly beautiful. So seventeenth uh, century furniture. But I remember when a chip came off of one of the pieces, and my mom, my grandmother said, "Make sure you save the chip," because we, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, "I isn't this chest mahogany?" Because I learned what mahogany was. This is mahogany, a beautiful wood, beautiful beautiful colors in it. And I remember the chick, and I remember going, I thought this chest was mahogany. And I remember she looked at me, she goes, no, that's just the veneer. Nobody makes chests out of mahogany. And I remember thinking, in other words, don't, don't be put off by people who pretend to be super religious and look very beautiful on the outside. Even the very best of us are managing veneers sometimes, Right? So what's the answer to the veneer, to the superficiality? Dig deep. You've got to dig deep. What's the big thing we found about Saul? 
Saul's. We've done this character study of Saul in 1 Samuel. As we saw the descent of Saul, where did it start? He just had a superficial knowledge of God. He was just another Joe, Joe, Joe Israelite, Joe Christian, we could say today. And all of that superficiality was simply a promise of complete destruction. <sighs> Dig deep. You, you can't afford to not dig deep. You need to get yourselves dirty with connection and love and, and transformation and, and connection with each other. And one, We need to be a people connected like this, who are in love with each other and in love with Him. I mean, you've got to put down roots. Now, and I think part of the, this generation, a lot of you are like, oh, I'm not only going to be in San Francisco so long, or I'm going to be... Christ was only here three years and he gave his life. Don't give me any excuses anymore. Or I don't know how I connect with these people or those people. So what? Christ was the eternal son. He had no connection with Simon whatsoever. But he entered Simon anyway. Don't give me this. I, this generation. I don't, not, it's all garbage. The people before you are the people God has given you to dig in with and dig into Christ. I mean, dig into his word and dig into prayer. And don't be afraid to go deeper and to want and to be hungry to go deeper. I'll tell you what, a lot of our need is just to have a hunger for depth, a hunger for, for a more meaningful knowledge of him. And you're going to find that by being connected with Clayton and connected with Lou, connected with, uh, with McLaren and Timothy. And you're going to find this by loving each other and, and, be, and being devoted to worship and being devoted to the church. And yet, what do we choose for instead? We choose for a, a haphazard and lackadaisical attitude about, about community, church, and the gospel, fitting it in wherever we can fit it in, scrapping it around. You know what it's a lot like? You know, sometimes you feel lonely as a pastor because you're the only one who really is really... You're, you're, I look, I'm more invested than all of you all. I get that. I always will be, I guess, in one sense, right? But it reminds me of a story. Pig and chicken. We're walking down the road. They're good friends really good friends. And the pig turns to the chicken. He goes, you know, they see, a, they see a, a restaurant as they're walking down the road. And the pig says to the chicken, you know what? We should open a restaurant. We should open a breakfast place. And they think it's a great idea. And they're good friends. And the chicken says, that's a great idea. And, uh, and the chicken says, hey, you know what we should call it? Ham and eggs. The pig kind of head falls down. He goes, I'm not interested. Chicken's like, why? It was your idea. And the pig says, don't you get it? I'd be invested. You'd just be contributing. Are you invested? Or are you just contributing? That's the difference between superficiality and the opportunity for depth. Which one is with you and Jesus in this church? Right? Third, the success. You know what the enemy of the best life is? The life, the reproductive life, this life that, this life that somehow Stacy, I can see Stacy doing this, where the people she's around are changed and they're changed and there's this escalating kind of ring. There's, you get the sense of this ring of influence and effect and, and transformation by the presence of the gospel. But that's the best life. But you know what the enemy, the enemy of the best life is? The enemy of the best life? It's the biggest enemy here in San Francisco. The good life. And here's where the church and 
modern America has been muted and, and strangled and somehow rendered ineffective. We're just prosperous. We've been nibbling so long at the table of the world, nibbling so long at all the delights that are here for us, all the delights of this life, all the delights of our marriages and our, and our careers and our opportunities to go to Napa and our opportunities and all the delights of what we can have. We're nibbling and nibbling and nibbling and nibbling. Christ comes in with a banquet of love and the Holy Spirit. And we've got to go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm full. I, I, I'm, I'm not hungry anymore. We don't come to Sunday hungry. <laughs> You know, Sunday full. Netflix has filled us up. <laughs> We're entertained out the yin yang. I can't believe I just said yin yang. <laughs> I don't even know what yin yang means. It's like this. It's almost like, have you ever had a waiter come with the second course or the main course and the table's so cluttered with your appetizer dishes and all, your, all the other, and, and there's not enough room for the meal? And it's almost like that. We just filled up and filled up and filled up and eating and enjoying and laughing and drinking and good times. And, and we can't, the main course can't even fit on our tables. Imagine the tables are our schedules. I... The enemy of the best life is the good life. And this has taken the American church and rendered it virtually powerless. What's the antidote? Weed the garden. Weed. Here was superficiality was digging on roots. Weed your garden. <laughs> Weed your garden. Weed out the things. Weed out the things that are, that are strangling. Weed out, the, weed out all these things that are, that, that are, give up those things that are taking you from intimacy with Christ, intimacy with his people and the gospel. So what is this parable then? It's an invitation in the agrarian model to almost like a reinvestment. Maybe you need to reinvent your life. Maybe you need to rediscover Jesus. Maybe you need to re-want Jesus, as it were. Have you ever read that? Like, I just need to re-want him. And maybe you, uh, uh, some sort of inventory has to happen about why you've allowed superficial knowledge to be the norm or why you have permitted, uh, why you have permitted and the ways in which you've permitted the good life that you enjoy to be such an obstacle to spiritual renewal and joy. And you need to do that inventory. Find somebody to do it with. One of the best ways to do this is to do this with somebody. Do it with me. And, this, uh, and let's, let's together look for an answer to what this parable in a sense threatens, but then in a sense also promises. Because this parable ends with promise, not with a threat. Doesn't it? God wants to take people like you and me, and he wants to have a harvest. He wants abundance for his people. He wants abundance. He's not afraid of Satan. He's not afraid of superficiality. He hasn't feared the thorns that choke out life. What does he do? He's not afraid of all that. Because he knows that if we just had a dozen of us, to get this, I mean, this is completely biblical. If there were just 12 of us who bought this whole, whole, wholesale, you could change the world. If there were just 12 men and women who believed in the victory over Satan dig deep in Christ and his people and 
would weed the garden completely. He knows. 12 people at 100 fold, do the math. 30, 60, and 100 mixed in together, do the math. Do the historical analysis. A bunch of farmers and fishermen changed the lives of an entire empire. May God be pleased to do that with us in the city of San Francisco. Let's pray. Father, we hear the challenge, we hear the threats, we hear the reality. We... Father, you need to take this word. And... Would you water it, water us, give us... Don't give up on us. We pray to be good, good soil. We pray that we'd learn to we, we pray now against Satan and his power. Don't let him remove anything from us or any of our friends or the people we love or kids or anything. Father, don't let superficiality be in my heart anymore. Don't let success continue to allure us the way it does and trick us. And let your kingdom reign. Let your kingdom grow. Let your kingdom flourish for the sake of Christ. Amen. Christ never stopped being earthy, did he? He chose as the central right, the central communication of his presence, power, and joy, and his resurrection, and his redemption, the simplicity of what? Ah, some, something to drink and something to eat. So you would... The point would be so accessible, so, so near to us, so available. So this, this is the table of our Lord. About three years after he was teaching on by the seashore there with these men and women, he was in an upper room knowing he was about to die. And they didn't understand what was going on at the time, and he took bread and he broke it and told them, this is my body, which is for you, take and eat. Then... After he was done uh, with, with uh, that, take these out of here. No, taking the crackers I fondled out of there. Um, he took some wine and he poured it and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now Paul said that. He said, he who Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, has life. So this is a table for those who believe. This is your first place to kind of cash in, to kind of cash in on, uh, on, on going deep with Christ. This is, uh, so if you receive this table by faith, it's your table. And it's so rustic and simple and clear and agrarian. It's just what you do. So Christ has made himself very accessible to us by faith. If you have faith in the Christ uh, and you know him and you assent, we have that, 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 the, uh, the Apostles' Creed there you can look at the, the, which is, comes down to us from antiquity and uh, we're going to say that together. If you assent to this, this is your table. So this table though is for sinners who put their trust in Jesus Christ. There are certain people though who shouldn't take the table some should take it out of respect, not take it out of respect. And what I mean by that is if you're not a believer, if you don't share our convictions, 
then that would be respectful to not take this table until you share our belief system. I'm just hoping that you're uh, curious, that you are perhaps realizing you might have to make a decision. But there's a second group I think it's not, it's not uh, who's forbidden to come to the table. And the people who are forbidden to come to the table are people who think they're good people. People who think that they're righteous people on their own. Who think that they have no need of God. This table is a, a stench to that person. We're not allowed here. It's only for sinners who come by faith. So, let's stand. We're going to come forward and take the bread and the, and the wine. There's grape juice in the center here, for those who prefer it, in these four cups. And, um, and go back to your seat, and we'll take it together. So I ask you, Christian, come forward, Christian. Tell me, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Come. It's the body of our Lord. Come. The body and the blood of our Lord. Come. <laughs> you can have one afterwards. Uh... Take and eat. Take a drink. <laughs>